Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. By a certain reckoning, Joyce Maynard has been a famous writer since 1971, which is saying something. Uh, And uh, her career has taken all kinds of interesting turns. One of the interesting turns was in 2018 when she met with me in New Haven for uh, a show that dealt at least partly with her decision to go back to Yale and finish the education she she interrupted uh, because of certain writing demands and changes in her life that are pretty well documented at this point. Anyway, she's got a new book out. She had a certain amount of drama associated with just getting the book published for reasons that we're going to explain. We're also going to talk about uh, Joyce Maynard's new kind of sub-career, I guess that's the right word, uh, which is running an inn, kind of. In Guatemala? Why am I talking like this? I have no idea. Anyway, we'll be talking to Joyce Maynard for the second time after this news. There's a little white duck sitting in the water, a little white duck doing what he ought He took a bite of a lily pad, flapped his wings, and he said, I'm glad I'm a little white duck sitting in the water. Quack, 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 quack. That, of course, is Blue Oyster Cult. No, no, it's, you know, it's it's Pearl Hives. I've always considered this to be a somewhat demented song. I would never play this song for a child in a million years. Um, and it gets really sad, too. Like, there's a snake, I think, that eats some of the other things in the song. Anyway, it is mentioned. It is, I'm hoping, hoping that where she's sitting right now, she's smiling. Uh, Joyce Maynard is with us today. Along. <laughs> and and she's in New Haven. I'm in Hartford. Uh, her new book is The Bird Hotel. This song does play a very minor, uh, make a minor appearance in, in, uh-huh. in the book. Uh, and... Uh, but that's we're not actually here to talk about Burl lives, so I don't think you know anything more needs to be said. Um, oh, I was going to sing, actually. You're going to sing? Yeah. <laughs> you should sing, and you should do uh, Guatemalan bird calls as well, yeah. which I know is a new thing you're doing. So, um, so what we'll do today, and I'm telling this to Joyce, I think as well as to uh. the listeners, is I want to talk a little bit about the book and some of the struggles that you had getting the book published uh, here in the first segment. I think in the second segment, it might be interesting just to, you know, you've had a pretty amazing uh, and uh, a, a writing career of considerable duration. You were kind of a, a prodigy, prodigy. It'd be interesting to talk about sort of the life of a writer and how it's changed over the decades and what it's like now. And then in our final segment, we'll talk about your new second or third career as an innkeeper. So there's a lot of ground to cover here. Okay. Yeah, we've got okay. a lot to do here. So let's start, start with the Bird Hotel. This is the sure. story of uh, a woman whom we shall call either Joan or Irene, but I think mainly Irene. Uh, she is, we meet her as a little girl. She's uh, got a kind of a... Uh, footloose uh, hippie mom uh, and and no visible dad and she's having she's being you know shipped all over the place or the two of them are wandering all over the place and then one tragedy ensues I don't want to like step on too many 
things here. A tragedy ensues, and and uh, she kind of rebounds from that, and then another tragedy ensues, and then she just kind of follows her nose. She just lets the tides of life push her uh, and and steps on the next bus and or then the next airplane flight and winds up uh, in Central America where she uh, encounters. I would say, Joyce, I, you're not known as a magical realist writer to the best of my knowledge, but there is something very magical about it, where the story goes after this. Go ahead. It, I, I didn't anticipate this, but you're absolutely right, Colin. I've, this is my um, 12th novel. And, the, the, and, and in many ways, it's in keeping with my other stories, the, the kinds of themes and concerns. But what's new is, yes, um, magical events take place in this uh, in the life of this very sort of, you know, um, a character that could have been in any one of my other books. But but I've placed her in a an unnamed Central American country. And as somebody who spent a great deal of time myself in Central America over the last 25, 30 years, um, I appreciate that there is sort of just woven into the fabric of life um, an element of openness to the magical. And so it, it came out in this book. Yeah, now it's. I think it's very nicely done. There's sort of a, a Dickensian beginning to this where our, our protagonist suffers all kinds of sufferings and then kind of walks into this place where it seems as though she's been expected, although she hasn't really phoned ahead or made any real plan to get there. <laughs> Somehow or other, the hotel knows that she's coming. Uh, and the story, A hotel in which she's the only guest. Yeah, she's the only guest. And nobody seems particularly troubled by that either. So um, – and then all kinds of things happen after that. And, and I don't want to – you know, it's a very – it's a this book has a lot of plot. And I don't want to mess with it too much. Although I think it's fair to say it is a story that explores two major elements, I would say. One is resilience and the other one is trust. Uh, this is a, a woman who, as she gets into her mid-40s, has has struggled to trust because she has been betrayed so many times in her childhood and things have not been as they seemed and then fate has betrayed her too and visited tragedy upon her and and she tries to trust certain people who turn out not to be trustworthy. To me, that's a big issue. You want to say a little bit about that? Or, I mean, I, I know you don't well, sit down to write a novel about themes, but that's I, d- I do there. not. But yeah. it, and it's usually after the fact that I recognize where I am in this novel. This one would seem <clears throat> um, to be pretty far from my own experience um, and, and was at the time that I was writing it. Um, I sort of wrote myself into the reality, but we'll get to that. Um, but those two themes are resilience and trust are big ones in my life. I, I've, um, I've, I don't know that there are too many people at the age that I am now who can say that they haven't experienced some pretty profound losses, but I surely have. And um, one trait that I'm, I'm grateful for is resilience. I have, I have. <clears throat> Reimagined new lives multiple times, as does my character, and um, I guess I am a, a just sort of a ridiculously trust, trusting person. I always, contrary to experience, I expect things to work out. I expect people to be good. Um, if you read my novel Labor Day, you know it begins with a a woman, a sort of lonely, troubled single mother, taking her son back to school shopping at a Walmart, and a man comes up to her at the at the store with blood coming down his head, and and um, says, "Would you mind taking me home with you?" And she says, "Yes." Um, uh, he turns out to be a, an escaped convict 
on the run. And, you know, people have said to me about that book, we'll switch over to this one in a sec, but um, who would do such a thing to which I say, well, probably I would have um, under the right circumstances, which would be most circumstances. This is a woman who sort of goes on instinct and... um, and things happen to her that might seem um, uh, unlikely, but she gives herself over to trust, yeah, to seeing what the world will deliver. I, I think there's another thing that – and it could be just – I mean the reader uh, obviously brings his or her own baggage to any book. Um, there is uh, – very obviously, I, I mean – one of the driving forces of the plot of this book is the things that we don't know about our lives. And this young woman, or she's young when she first gets to Central America, um, there's a lot of things she doesn't know. And then there's other things that she knows that she's been told never to say. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I've started to realize there are things about my own life that I don't fully understand, things about, in particular uh-huh. about, about my parents and maybe in particular my mother that I don't understand, things that, you know, there are little pieces of the story that I think just get left out. You Thank know? God. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, yeah maybe we're still that's discovering. Good, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, um, but it's odd. It's odd to think, oh, well, I don't know that thing, do I? Uh, and, and, and you I, know, when when I – oh, excuse go me. Ahead, you go ahead. Uh, when I write – and this, this – I'm sure you've spoken to many writers who would say the exact opposite. But I give myself over to my characters and let them lead me to the story. So I truly don't know what's going to happen. I think it's one reason why I work in the state of sort of, you know, heightened, you know, just I'm, I'm in a kind of white heat state when I'm writing, as I've been doing uh, pretty intensely these last few weeks, um, because I can't wait to find out what my characters are going to do. And as much as it would seem that I control their lives, they actually lead me to the story more often than not. It was certainly true of this one. I had no clue um, where um, where this woman was going to end up, but I I, I couldn't wait to find out. So um, there's also just this. We need to talk about the the sense of place, and then that'll kind of get us to some of the struggles about publishing it too. And I, I remember when the book Gorky Park came out, somebody, the, I think the book editor on that, told me that Martin Cruz Smith had gone to Moscow for like two weeks or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Wouldn't work now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, he just sort of figured it out. And of course, Gorky Park has a real feel to, to it. Like you know, it feels very, very authentically Russian. Although how I would be able to judge that, I guess, is an open question. But this is not the case for you. Your whole relationship with Central America begins more than 50 years ago. When you're 11, you go with your mom. And then a decade after that, you're back. And so you're specifically in the highlands of Guatemala on an orchid hunt. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I, I'd had a heartbreak. And I just wanted to disappear from the world for a while. I was 20 years old. And I thought, you know, that life was over. I wasn't uh, the type to jump off a bridge, but but I was pretty wiped out. I, I, I didn't, it's only afterwards that I recognized a connection between the story that I tell in the Bird Hotel and me at 20. I set off just to sort of disappear from the world, landed in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, where I met an <clears throat> old couple um, who invited me on an orchid hunt in Guatemala. It was a crazy thing to do in the year 1973 when a war was going on with the U.S. definitely on the wrong side of that one and rainy season to boot. But I got in this car. We only had our tires slashed three times, I think, um, 
and uh, and tromped around in the highlands with rain just pouring down. But in spite of all of that, I took one look at that glorious place, Lake Atitlan, surrounded by volcanoes, um, and I it grabbed my heart. And I vowed then I would return. I didn't return to Guatemala for 28 years, but um, I went again, I thought, just for 10 days when my, my daughter was going down there to study Spanish. And I had the same effect. And that time I said to her, oh, gosh, Audrey, you're so lucky you get to live in Guatemala and study Spanish. And she said uh, words that really changed my life. Um, What's keeping you, mom? (laughs) The truth was nothing. Um, My marriage was long over. My youngest son had just taken off. um, And I can do my work anywhere as long as I have my laptop, which I did. Um, So I cashed in my ticket rented a little house on the shores of that glorious lake, which in those days one could do for about 250 bucks a month, and stayed and swam every day. And on one of my swims, about a mile-long swim that I would take around the edge of the lake, um, I saw a sign, Se Vende, for sale. And um, I really had no business buying a piece of land with a little adobe house on it in Guatemala. But um, in those days, one could figure those things out by just a lot of smoke and mirrors sometimes. And I did. I bought that property. And it was, for many years, my little writing retreat where I would go and finished numbers of books there. Um, And once a year, I would host a memoir workshop to help other people, women, always women, tell their stories from their lives. And um, so, it, uh, yes, Guatemala. And over the years, I made gardens and built onto my house and found myself in Guatemala in March of 19 of 2020 don't need to say more about March of 2020 right I went there because I had scheduled a memoir workshop and I had no idea if anybody was coming but I figured I'd be there in case they did amazingly all 16 women showed up and the president of Guatemala got on the TV the day after they arrived and said we're closing the airport in three days so most of them went home, but the astonishing thing was that eight stayed, not really knowing how they were going to get home. And I kind of knew they would. The U.S. State Department eventually sent a plane for them about 12 days later. But I knew that I didn't want to go home, that I was in the best place to be in a pandemic. And I invited two of the youngest students who were both 32 years old and had no compelling reason to go back to the United States in COVID times. Um, So I invited them to stay with me, thinking we'd be together for three or four weeks. And we were together by choice for six months Mm. that I will consider six of the most extraordinary months of my life. And it was during that period that I I first finished my novel, Count the Ways, which... um, I would read to them every night from Count the Ways, and they would, they would, we would be sitting out under the stars, you know, having a dinner and by candlelight, and and having this great experience. They were everybody was working on their different projects at the time, and when I finished that book, they said, "Okay, write another one. We're not ready to give up these story times." So that became the Bird Hotel, and I, I always think of it as sort of my. Thousand and One Nights, Arabian Nights book. You know, it's I was this Shahrazad reading to the girls. <laughs> I always called them the girls. And there are, I think, one hundred chapters in the book because every night they got another chapter. Mm-hmm. 
So what happens next, or what happens when the book is completed anyway, and this is dealt with to a certain degree in kind of an afterword in the actual volume of the book itself, uh, is that publishers turned you away because of what they talked about in terms of appropriation. You're a white woman writing about a Central American environment. Uh, even writing from the point of view of an expat apparently was, at least at that moment, who knows whether this would repeat itself now, but I think it probably would. Uh, it, uh-huh. it got, it got, they got prickly about that. So say, first of all, what did, exactly did they say? Well, I have to begin by saying that, you know, it's, I, I find myself, you know, I'm surprised to be um, voicing opinions, views that, you know, traditionally are more expected from the right. Um, but um, I, I will be forever a, a believer in the, in the essential uh, value of diversity in art, culture, science, what wherever we are are working. Um, I've been publishing work 50 years, and I'm so glad to be part of a publishing world now that has, you know, kinds of representation that did not, you know, we couldn't find in 1973 when my first book came out. Came out. That said, um, I am appalled by this other phenomenon, which is that after I published this book, and I think very much in the in in the aftermath of the publication of American Dirt, mm-hmm. a novel that really sort of changed the landscape of publishing in the U.S. and and to some degree beyond, um, I was told that really I was not qualified to tell a story set in Central America, even though my character is a North American woman in Central America. People do get around, you know, and um, it's I never appropriated the voice of a Latina character or an indigenous character. But but um, my experience of being a foreigner in in a Central American country is is pretty vast. So yes, I um, it was uh, it was the first time in my writing life that I got shut down this way. And eventually the book was published um, uh, by a very small press here in the U.S. And, and because of that, it's been a sort of word-of-mouth phenomenon. But, um, but I'm happy to say that it's, it's the, the kinds of issues that the gatekeepers raise are not, I think, issues of readers. I haven't heard from a single uh, Latin or indigenous person. Indigenous people would be less likely to be reading this book, but, but certainly Latin uh, readers um, who've had an issue with it. I'm, 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 I'm looking through the lens of a person who is not me, um, but who shares some of my experience, and I'm doing that thing that I think is crucial for all artists or those who attempt to make art, which is to explore not just the territory of the known, but the imagination. Yeah, just a reminder, American Dirt, I'm trying to remember the whole thing, but it was by Janine Cummins. Uh, it was written from a Mexican perspective. It was, I believe, an Oprah's book club pick. It was. P.S., that book still sold 500,000 copies, yes. which is why I speak of the gatekeepers that I, you know, I think uh, in the current publishing climate, um, there's a sort of preemptive idea that you know we'll we'll shut this down before there is a problem. I'm mm. I'm for readers deciding mm. for themselves. Anyway, that's that's not the point. The point is your book. So I I, I re- went in this went into reading it, knowing your story about this, 
because you told me. Um, and I have to say, the whole issue of appropriation, the whole idea of a gringo invasion, the whole idea of certain people being kind of ugly Americans. I think these guys in the book known as the lizards, I think, you know, or just like <laughs> really sort of symbolic of – but there's, there's a lot of – the mid part of this book is a big, long conversation about how to treat a place like this, uh, how to make it other – something other than – uh, take what you need and leave the rest kind of a relationship yeah. with a very sort of beautiful and, and in many ways fertile uh, place. Uh, and there are people who make mistakes and people who do who are clearly just rapacious. Uh, and there are some people who seem kind of exploitive. There's at least one woman, Ariadne, who is uh, cited as exploitive at the beginning, but uh, redeems herself a little bit at the end. Um, so it wouldn't. It's not as though this issue is absent from the book. I guess that's when I started to read the book, knowing what you told me. I, I thought, well, maybe there will be a little bit of blindness about certain things, but just this seems to be a book that's wrestling specifically with that question that they're so sensitive about. Uh, no argument from me. I mean, I, I, I'm mystified by by the stance that you know that would have us. I mean, we could we could list all the books that would not exist if their authors had been held to the requirement of having a cultural um, heritage identical to that of their characters. Um, but, but in fact, I do share this experience of being a foreigner and a foreigner in a culture that I love, but in which I will always be an outsider. Um, and, you know, I'm a Spanish speaker, but I'm, a, you know, I'm certainly an imperfect Spanish speaker living in a Mayan indigenous village when I'm there whose first language is not even Spanish. Um, and I'm always going to be the rich American. I, I, I get that. I'm not a rich American in North America, but in Guatemala, for sure, just about any of us would qualify as that. Um, so I grapple with, uh, do I just not go there because I... I am not of that place, or is there a place for me? And and I've come to the conclusion that actually I I can do something valuable as a foreigner, and um, and hope that I have. Well, I also think so. Look, there you're right that you know. I mean, I I, I think if we went back and read a passage to India now, we we might find things you know that Forster does that are are you know maybe they wouldn't fly by contemporary standards. But that's a useful conversation too. One book I was thinking about a lot. I, I I'm sure I'm the only person within miles who's ever read this book, but Herman Wauk, who famously wrote uh, uh-huh. The Winds of War, you know what I'm going to uh-huh. talk about, right? Yeah. The Winds of War and the Cane Mutant. He wrote a book called Don't Stop the Car which I think was basically a rendering of the Virgin Islands. But the Virgin, Virgin Islands circa late 50s, maybe 1960s. Uh-huh. And, and there's a way in which – and it's about also, I think, as I recall it, kind of refurbishing a hotel or something like that. Huh. Uh, and uh, um, there's a way in which some of the local cultures played for laughs in a way that you don't do. But uh-huh. I, I sort of feel like, okay, so that book exists and let's read it and let's talk about it and let's read American Dirt. Let's talk about that. I mean, Well, that's always my way. Let's talk about the difficult stuff. It was, you know, as you know, the last time I was speaking with you on your program, I had just come back to Yale after a f- absence of 47 years um, as an undergraduate. Um, I think I might hold the record for the biggest <laughs> gap. Definitely the longest. Do. 
<laughs> um, and and it was a great experience. I think I met you just a few weeks after I'd started. But I, I, I will say, and I am now officially a two-time Yale dropout. I made it two and a half years this time around. But, but one of the things that most disturbed me, plenty was great, but about the Yale of now was the, the degree of um, political correctness that would have – us not looking at anything that might upset students, you know, um, which I would say would be just about, you know, any book I've ever written would have triggers in it. And I, as does life, um, I, I don't, again, you know, it's one has to be so careful here and say, of course, I respect the, you know, the sensitivities of Young people, middle-aged people, old people, but um, I also feel that you know intellectual quest requires that we go into difficult territory and look at them. You know, I I would suspect that you know a great many of the of the films that I remember seeing and loving as a young person, loving film, would never be shown at Yale anymore because there are characters who do things you know who are playing roles on the screen that you know you know black train conductors and, and, you know, Asian butlers. And I, I want to look at those films and then talk about them and know what happened and know why we don't do that anymore, but um, not yeah, cancel it, them out. And it's hard to know where that's coming from, too, because I, I continue to teach at Yale. I'm there in the spring most years, and I've never had a student say, you know, I'm triggered by that or don't do that or um, – there was one woman, young woman. I give them all rubber ducks when uh, when they uh-huh. join, join the class. And one woman, you have to draw your rubber duck out of a bag, kind of blindly. And she came up with a kind of busty rubber duck with a bathing suit on. She did. Like oh, that. that was like the closest thing we've ever had to you know a ma- massive uh, incident uh-huh. in class. But no, by and large, I, the kids seem they don't act fragile to me. I, you know, there uh-huh. must be somebody somewhere telling them th- that. But I, uh-huh. I don't. I don't run into that. So it's sort of weird. To, like, where does this really come from? Who starts it all? Anyway, we have to take a quick break here. We're with Joyce Maynard. Uh, her new book is The Bird Hotel. You can get the book. A lot of things could happen. Here's a Guatemalan band, by the way. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Dylan's when I paint my masterpiece, uh, there's uh, some masterpiece painting that also goes on uh, in Joyce Maynard's new book, The Bird Hotel. But so Joyce, um, and I should say, I'm up in Hartford. Joyce is down in New Haven. Um, I I want to just talk a little bit about being a writer right now. Let's take the whole Guatemala appropriation controversy out of it. But you okay. you started. I mean, you started early in your teens. You were writing for magazines, uh, more or less simultaneously with your arrival at Yale. Uh, you had written this piece called "An Eighteen Year Old Looks Back on Life," uh, which was published in the New York Times Magazine. And I totally missed the irony of that title. <laughs> <laughs> it went right over my head. But it was, yeah. I mean, it was really, I mean, this is back when the New York Times Magazine had an impact that it couldn't right. have today. It was a much less fragmented media landscape. This is a really big deal. When I got to Yale a year later, people were still talking about this piece. I had at least one friend who kind of wanted to be you, I think. He was wanted to be the next version of you. Oh. So, um, If he'd only known <laughs> what being me involves. <laughs> well, well, there's all that, too. But I guess what I'm wondering is, since then, you've had a pretty storied career, books that are made into movies. We're talking about 40 books now, I think, if you put the nonfiction together with the fiction. And I just feel like, and this is not just you, I've been talking to other writers lately. I don't know. I feel like writers are a little bit more adrift on their own these days, that there's kind of a sense that you're going to make your way through the world or oh, you're ab- not. Yeah, talk, absolutely. talk about Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I've been called a um, shameless self-promoter, um, but I prefer to call myself, a, you know, a, a woman who supported her family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have been – I haven't actually collected a paycheck since – um, 1977, which doesn't mean I haven't been working really hard. I've been a full-time working writer. And to do that now in in the current world really requires that you not only write the books. That used to be enough. Um, but it, this would be kind of the equivalent of, you know, if an actor had to sort of first build the soundstage and hang the lights and, you know, paint the sets and sell the tickets. Um, so there's a lot more of the stuff around that. As you know, because the reason I'm on this program is I sent you a note and said, I'd like to be on your program. Um, and uh, the writers who are above all of that and, you know, off in their tower, you know, unless they are one of a very small handful, um, will probably not do very well anymore. We have to sort of toot our horn. So, yeah, I I am a shameless self-promoter. <laughs> well, I think also what surprises me is 
kind of how that hierarchy works now. Uh, I, what I mean, you're talking about the writers who maybe uh, there there are some writers. You know, I don't think Colleen Hoover has to go out and you know work as hard as most people do. Uh, there are some writers right now who probably are kind of taken care of and have their retinue. They've got their people mm-hmm. and the people look after stuff and everything. It's just a way smaller group. I, I just would have assumed there's some publicist, you know, waiting to just take over all this and, and a schedule or two. And all well, that's all kind of gone, I think. I'm, and of course, you know, that those things might be nice. But I will say, actually, I don't see this as an entirely unfortunate um, aspect of my career life that I have been almost the antithesis of the very famous, very powerful, very reclusive um, great writer of the 20th century with whom I kept company for, um, you know, a year that, you know, uh, was the reason why I dropped out of Yale. I like to be out in the world and I I am very accessible to readers, and I wouldn't ever want it otherwise. There are um, there are people who I've been seeing at readings and hearing from, and you know whose stories I know for you know forty years, um, and they they inform my work. I'll say it's you know that's probably my greatest education more than anything I ever got at Yale. Um, though I got some good things at Yale. Um, Which time it, though? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they they both had their ups and downs, but um, uh, I loved the second time, and then I was really ready to go. Um, but I'm I I am a person who's sort of out there in the world. I've said, you know, if I had to stand on a street corner with a stack of books, I wouldn't, you know, find myself humiliated by that. I'd say, well, I'm going to meet a lot of interesting people, and I do. Um, I've had a sort of odd career that way. Well, I, I think also, so there's an expression from the world of marketing and economics that's been around for maybe 20, 25 years, and that's the long tail. Um, and one aspect of the idea of the long tail is that it may actually be better to have 15,000 fans who are passionate about what you, whatever it is that you do, whether you're a writer or anything else, and who will come out on a rainy night to an event that you're doing mm-hmm. than it is to have 50,000 50, instead of 15,000, 50 or 60,000 people who kind of know who you are and they know what you do and fine and yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, I have nothing better to do. <laughs> you know, and that idea of a smaller, passionate group of people who consume your work uh, is, I think, a more workable model in this in this way. So taking care of your readers one fan at a time, which is a little bit of what you're describing, I think, is... I think not only a noble thing to do, but it might really be the most effective model right now. And uh, I mean, I, I you know I, I don't do this for nobility, but it um, I I I am informed by the stories of others, and it has expanded my understanding of this. Will sound sort of pompous, but you know of the human condition. Mm. Um, you know, my novel, the Count the Ways, um, the one before this one, is. It, is is a work of fiction, but and I would never violate the confidentiality of you know the hundreds of women that I've worked with now, you know, helping them write memoir, write personal narrative. But it uh, their stories, I could not have written that book or most of my books without um, having heard the lives of as many women and men as I have over the years. I'm I'm really grateful for that. Oh, absolutely. And and another thing that I think has changed 
For example, you had something up on Facebook about how you woke up in the morning and realized the ending of the new book is wrong. You got to redo the whole thing. And you mentioned you're coming to Connecticut and you're talking to some person you apparently have confused with me because you say he's such a great uh, uh, interviewer. But um, the um, but this is like, you know, John Updike didn't like get on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't see the people. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to rewrite my the ending of my book. I mean, you don't know anything about a John Updike book. By the way, he's not the person that you were talking about before. Just in case people are getting confused uh, uh, now. Um, and, and and let me just say, you know, I don't want to be um, confused with with um, those uh, those people who make that choice. Mm-hmm. It's great for them, and especially if they can afford to make that choice. Um, but I I think there are quarters in which it's viewed as somehow less literary if you are a person rubbing shoulders with the world and you should be that writers are this rarefied breed that should be off somewhere you know with a pencil behind their ear you know and a glass of whiskey next to their laptop or something I um, I want to see the stuff of the world and even though sometimes in the short term it takes me away from my work. It um, it gives me the stories to tell. I um, the Bird Hotel. I was living with these two young women, both thirty two, and and one of them was um, from China originally, a composer, and who'd um, come to the workshop via. She'd been living in New York City, but but she she had been raised initially in China. I have a, an Asian character who I probably never would have presumed to write um, had she ran not been you know living in my house with me for six months. And um, and the other one, Jenny, was a big football fan from the UK, meaning soccer, of course. And so I've got a soccer fan. But but even in a deeper way, I, I'm exploring experiences that, um, that I know because I've, um, I have made myself open to not just the stories of my own life, but lots of other people's. Yeah, and I, I think also, yeah, there's this kind of idea, I think, in at least some quarters, that literary fiction takes place in this very rarefied state. And, you know, the, I don't know. <laughs> Remember, there was like this article. There, Usually about, involves people at MFA programs. Yeah. <laughs> But there's like a story – I forget which novel it was – that uh, Jonathan Franzen was like blindfolding himself and putting earplugs. He was trying to like uh, create this total sense of sensory deprivation and distance from everything uh-huh. so that he could think out whatever book he was writing now. But the uh-huh. reality is – I mean think of Dickens. Dickens is writing stuff in installments and being paid by the word. And, uh-huh. and he's peering back from people on the street. Hey, Chuck, you better not let that little girl die of fever. Uh-huh. You better do something about that, Chuck. You know, And, and Shakespeare – is is you know presenting stuff to a very rowdy raucous uh, audience at the globe and people are yelling ah you should make Richard even worse uh, <laughs> you know there's a way in which that idea of sort of real time feedback it, it, I, it is, I love has, it. it's an I, honorable tradition I don't guarantee that I'm going to deliver everything that people say but I'm always interested in hearing you know they I've mentioned Count the Ways the book before this which has a really passionate following and um, I in fact. Um, just now, the book I'm just finishing now is the sequel to Count the Ways. I Bird Hotel kind of popped in the middle, but and I waited a full year to begin that sequel because I knew that there were so many uh, people out there. I won't just say women, although of course, who are we kidding? Predominantly women who loved that book, loved that character, and really, I I, I had to make sure that I did right by 
her, the character, for them. I I knew that in the sequel I didn't just want to make everything, you know, have some great man come galloping along and, and solve all the problems of her life. Um, and I was pleased, actually, to hear women say that they didn't want that either. If they had said that, I probably couldn't have delivered it, but I did give her a love affair, but um, a complicated one, as they tend to be. Um, so, yeah, I'm always going to have my ear to the ground, and, and I will... Um, I'll pick up a lot from that experience. The other thing for me is that I i think this is a crucial difference. I have written for my living. I don't have a side gig, you know, teaching, I, uh, casting no aspersions on people who do, obviously. I, I didn't have some, you know, other paycheck coming home. I, I kind of knew that if I didn't keep people interested in my books, I won't say my kids wouldn't eat, but they wouldn't, you know, eat as well, and they might not have um, music lessons. Mm-hmm. So I had to keep you turning the page. And I, I, it does, I, I, I didn't, I don't um, sacrifice the quality of the writing for that, but I'm all about good storytelling. I want to, I, I want to keep you up at night. I want to, I sort of have to, I'm singing for my supper, you know. <laughs> All right. So uh, there may be circumstances under which you might get to have supper with Joyce Maynard. Uh, we're going to explain <laughs> those things uh, after this next break. We will come back to Joyce Maynard. Okay. Her new book is The Bird Hotel. We'll be back. Follow The Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believed. Back to the show. And we are back. Time to say some thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer up here in Hartford. Jonathan McPants is down in New Haven producing with Joyce Maynard from our New Haven studios. Our senior producer is Lily Tyson. So, um, And I want to just thank whoever chose the Ricardo Arjona song that you just played, Colin. um, Ricardo Arjona is a wonderful Guatemalan artist, probably the premier 
a Guatemalan uh, singer-songwriter, and that's a song called Fuiste Tu. And if you go to YouTube and see the video of it, you will see this paradise of places in Guatemala that Arjona yes. takes you to. Which is, he also has Gabi Moreno singing uh, with does. him on that. Yes. Uh, and whoever uh, picked that song is obviously a person with impeccable musical taste. Yes. That was me. Um, <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, we just have a little bit of time left, but this other thing happened. You really kind of uh, wrote a novel that you were going to be living or something or some so – explain what happened. You, okay. This is so, a book about so, uh, the novel if you're Total invention. Us. Yeah, total invention. It was my fairy tale, you know, for the girls, my, my Thousand and One Nights. Um, every morning I would climb the steps up my property to the top of the property to my little writing cabin with my laptop and tell this, you know, next installment in the story. And um, I was joined by 20 men. Well, what happened was we never really got COVID in my village, but there was desperate unemployment desperate, desperate unemployment once once the tourists had left. So it, there we were sitting in this house. I'm writing my books. Shiren's doing her music. Jenny's doing her podcast. And um, they were taking up collections for the indigenous community that suddenly had nothing to eat. And I contributed, but I felt this isn't an ultimate solution. So I decided to build a guest house. And I hired this crew of 20 men to come and build to have jobs. I couldn't afford to maintain a crew of 20 men very long in the USA, but I could in Guatemala and still pay them a good wage. Um, And they were so grateful for the work, and I was so happy to be giving them work, and I'm going up the hill to write, and they're coming down the hill to build. There was this sort of immediate connection that, you know, I'm going to be typing away. They're going to be digging and hammering and lifting stones, and there was this direct relationship that I have never known before and may never again between my work and somebody eating that night. Um, and when that little guest house finished, there was still a pandemic and there was still great poverty in my village. So we built another guest house and um, uh, the men had more work for another month. And before it was over, I had built seven little houses on my property. Um, originally, the people who would always come to my workshops would stay off the property in funky little hotel in the town, but now they could stay there. But only, I swear, only after I'd done that and basically completely exhausted my savings did it occur to me that I only give a workshop like once or twice a year, and I have all these casitas, so... I guess I'd better start running a hotel, which I do. And I'm trying to picture, like, you know, you as Bob Newhart or something. Uh, or, <laughs> well, or I'm John, not always or John there. John Cleese, perhaps. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, I'm like, not always there. Yeah. But I will say I'm very involved. It's Sometimes it's a retreat center. Sometimes it's a hotel. People can stay in one casita or more casitas. They can have their honeymoon. They can have their reunion. They can do whatever. But um, I'm probably involved in that, you know, for a few hours every day. Sometimes somebody gets locked out of their room and the property manager isn't there and I get the phone call. And in the middle of the night, I'm figuring out how to get the door open. Um, So, yes, it was not something I anticipated. And when I wrote The Bird Hotel, I had no thought that I would myself become 
a person who was running such a place. But in fact, it is, I will say, it's probably the most beautiful place to stay. Um, this is not a, a promotional tool for my place, which actually is pretty well booked up. But um, it's the most beautiful place to stay on Lake Atitlan, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and and, it, and I carry. <laughs> this is kind of appalling when I even just say it out loud. I I carry a pay, uh, payroll of about thirty five men and women at this point who are running the place as we speak. I think there are twenty people staying on the property. Yeah, and I I think it does run again contrary to the image people would <laughs> have of a writer. Right, writers are almost by by definition and maybe at a highly fussy level. You know, people who don't want to be burdened with the, you know, the things that come up in life, the things, the intrusive elements of people who have this problem or that problem. And even to which I would say the stuff that comes up in life is what writers should be looking at. Right. Um, So yeah, I I I I invented the stories of you know many of the guests who check into the Bird Hotel, but in fact, my my life is filled with the stories of the real people that that I have encountered there over the years now. Yeah, I mean, you you say this, uh, there's a piece you did in the New York Times about this, and and, and it does sound like people are coming, people who've adopted uh, internationally, uh, have maybe adopted babies from Guatemala, are coming back with those babies having grown up. There there are a lot of stories walking through the doors, I guess there would, ten, there would tend to be. I love stories. <laughs> Is there any part of you that thinks at this point, what am I doing? I'm a writer. I really shouldn't be doing this. Or does this just feel like it's going to work? <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm sort of greedy, you know. I, especially the older I get, the more intensely I feel one life just doesn't feel enough. I'm trying to fit in a few of them, and luckily I do have a lot of energy, and I get up early, which is one of my ways that I can accomplish, you know, the the writing day. I sort of get to the writing day before the phone starts ringing. But um, no, I I. It could have a simpler life, but a less interesting life. I think if I if I weren't um, if I didn't have my 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 Guatemala piece of it. And, and I mean, when you say you know every day, maybe there's a few hours that get taken up with this. Are we talking about? I don't know. You said maybe somebody kid got locked out of the room. Are there like emergency? I mean, let me just say this: in the novel, without doing any spoilers, like some really bad things happen. Uh, some <laughs> well, we're never going to have a volcanic eruption. Although right. the you, volcano that I see every morning from my writing desk is inactive, but yeah. but um, I won't necessarily say that's the same with the volcano in the Bird Hotel. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of things happen. We've I I um. I, I will say I have to just sort of put in my plug for Guatemala that although <clears throat> it was not a good place to travel to in 1973, um, it continues to disturb me no end that the U.S. State Department posts warnings about Guatemala on their website when they could just as easily post warnings of this sort about the USA. Um, it's I have I, I'm proud that I have brought, you know, hundreds and hundreds, probably it's in the thousands now of people to Guatemala who might otherwise not have gone and discover what an extraordinarily beautiful country physically and culture it is, the the Mayan culture that is still very much alive. All right. Well, if you would like to uh, join that culture for a, a shorter visit than one to Guatemala, you can read Joyce Maynard's new novel, The Bird Hotel. Well, so uh, let's see, every five years so that you're, you're back due here for a, 
uh, teeth, okay. uh, teeth, teeth cleaning and, you know, some uh, basic tests here around 2020. I would always have a conversation with you, Colin. All right, Joyce. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.